Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Sandy Soho. I am uh, one of the coordinators for Global Health Nursing here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Now I'm on. Now I'm on. Ooh, now I'm on. Anyway, you probably already heard what I just said. I'm Sandy Soho. Thank you for joining us for this session of Nursing Grand Rounds. I have all my housekeeping things to say to you. Um, and I want to welcome anyone who's viewing this session online. Uh, be sure to sign in on the attendance sheet, and you have to attend 80% of the program to receive credit. And for those viewing online, email Judy Langhands with any questions during the presentation. And to receive credit, be sure to email her within one hour of completing the presentation, stating that you participated in the educational activity live online. Include your name, degree, and zip code. And Judy's email address is judith.m.langhands at hitchcock.org. And everyone today who attends will receive a link to an online evaluation form by the end of the day. Um, the Center for Continuing Education values your feedback regarding this program and invites you to take a few minutes to complete the evaluation and also let us know about any other global health kinds of topics that you'd be interested in hearing about. Um, your contact hour will be posted to your online transcript within one month. Uh, there are instructions on how to access your online transcript by the, by the sign-in sheet, or you can contact Judy. And finally, please silence your cell phones and pagers. And for the disclaimer, neither our speakers nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. Our presentation today is entitled Healthcare Voluntourism, Virtuous or Injurious? And our speaker is Jean Prail. Jean has been an emergency nurse for 30 plus years and an emergency clinical nurse specialist since 1985. She holds a BSN from the University of South Carolina and a master's in nursing from the University of Washington in Seattle. She lived and worked as a nurse in South Carolina, Washington, Colorado, and Florida before moving to New Hampshire in 1994. In addition to being an author, editor, speaker, and consultant, she currently works per diem in the emergency department at Gifford Medical Center and Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Jean has participated in trips to Uganda as part of Project Helping Hands, two times as a team member, and most, the most recent time in January of this year as the team leader. So join me in welcoming Jean. Thank you. Well, um, Sandy originally asked me if I was interested in speaking about going to Uganda, and I said, well, sure, but I actually have a topic I think would be more thought-provoking than just telling you what happens when we go, because there are a lot of great organizations that send teams, lots of great stories to tell, but there's more to it than just going and taking care of people. Now, I see several of you in the audience who I know have traveled. How many of you have gone to um, other countries to do sort of humanitarian medical relief work? Okay. Uh, so we're going to talk primarily about my experiences uh, in terms of what I've seen, but then also how, if you want to do this, how do you do it in the best way? Because as my title slide would suggest, there can be injurious results. This is not necessarily all great for everyone. So the advantages, the objectives are to list the advantages of volunteering, list risks of volunteering, and then really to discuss the ethical considerations associated with this. 
Um, I do have handouts available online. Uh, they are currently, the link is not working and that's because I uh, depend on someone much younger than me to do it so I can't actually do it myself. <laughs> but I've emailed him and he's going to fix it. You, however, if it's not fixed by the time you go, you can always email me and I will send it to you. And I'll put this slide up again at the end. Um, the main thing I would encourage you to get the handouts for is the reference list because there are things I'm going to talk about that you may want to read more. As Sandy said, I have no financial conflicts of interest. I'm not being paid to present this, and I'm not paid to go on these teams. In fact, it costs me a great deal of money. And that's something you need to think about, because it is not generally um, organizations require you not only to fund your own expenses, but all of the expenses associated with providing the health care for the types of um, projects I'm talking about. And as Sandy said, I've been to Uganda three times now, most recently as a team leader. Um, I travel with Project Helping Hands. Uh, that is Jeff Solheim in the upper left corner. He's the founder. The organization is 20 years old this year. Started out with him going to the Dominican Republic and a few bottles of Tylenol in a suitcase. Uh, the, the organization now serves countries around the globe, Philippines, South America, Africa, uh, Dominican Republic, and Haiti. And it is a volunteerism organization. That's a word that I coined um, when I was coming up with this presentation because we're volunteers, but there is a tourist aspect of this. So a volunteerist is someone who goes to help provide health care in a short-term fashion and usually wants to be exposed to other cultures, other environments as part of their mission. Okay. Um, but the expectations, and, and as this slide would suggest, we don't just give care, we also do a lot of education. And that's important. People don't think about that. They think about going and taking care of people. They don't think about the more sustainable aspects of providing education about self-care. So if you're interested, what do we expect a volunteerist to be able to do? First off, you need broad knowledge about healthcare conditions and diseases. You need excellent physical assessment and history taking skills. You are usually working through a translator, which makes things all the more challenging in terms of history taking. And then physical assessment, um, we work in clinics with no electricity. So the good news is we quit when it turns dark. Uh, but the bad news is like even to do a NEB or something, we don't have that capability everywhere we are. General skills, well, cultural sensitivity. I would hope that most people who are interested in doing, doing this work in the beginning have a good um, foundation of that to begin with. Uh, we don't want people who go and feel superior to the people they're caring for, obviously. We want them to go and um, work with them as closely as they can to recognize their abilities and not just their limitations. Stamina, no doubt about it. If you're a nine to three sort of person, you got to have your lunch at a regular time. You got to take a nap at this time. This is not for you. This is hard work. Flexibility, you never know what's going to happen. Every day things change. So you need to go with the flow sense of uh, mindset or you'll go crazy. And the sense of time in countries other than the United States is often vastly different. So we say 9 o'clock, we generally mean about 9 o'clock. And that might be 9 o'clock to noon, or who knows. So patience um, and a sense of humor, because 
there's just a lot of things that, you know, if you can't smile and laugh at yourself when you fall and break the toilet, which wasn't me, that was my friend who did that, but um, if you can't laugh about that kind of stuff, you're going to have a very tough time. The opportunities available, um, there's a wide gamut of opportunities, and this is the first thing you really need to think about if this is something you're interested in doing. The first is disaster response, and this is the, you know, this is the on-the-news, glamorous, sexy, yanking people out of buildings, saving lives, right? Well, not if you're coming from a distance. And so many emergency nurses are drawn to this type of work, but unless you are part of an organization that is ready to go and have boots on the ground, self-sustainable within a short period of time, what you're going to be doing is public health nursing and long-term nursing. So you need to think about that if that's what you do want to do or what you don't want to do. We'll talk a little bit more about disaster in a bit. Short-term missions are the missions that I think most people um, are, are interested in, if you still have a job, you still have a family, you can't necessarily commit to a long-term. But long-term would be like Doctors Without Borders. I know Andrew did that last year. The current um, expectation, three to six months usually, at least? Six to 12, six to 12 months for a first time. So you're looking at leaving your job, basically, to go and do something like that, which is vastly different than spending two to three weeks um, and uh, of your vacation time. So my mother said to me as I was preparing for the first one and she was helping me count Tylenol, what good is this really going to do? You're going to go over there and give them this baggie of Tylenol. How, how long is that helpful? And I said, well, I know, but there's more to it than that. And I talked to her about the education and some of those things. But it's, of course, at the time, I hadn't been yet. So it planted a good seed in my brain, as mothers are wont to do. Um, and I actually spent some time conversing with a friend of mine from Seattle, Steve Bezrushka. And if any of you have traveled in Nepal, you know Steve because he's well known for his healthcare efforts in Nepal. And he's had a big change of heart about all of this because he sees the damage that people did not recognize before. So I, I thank my mother for sending me into my first experience with my eyes wide open thinking about this. But I do believe there are benefits, or I wouldn't continue to do it, obviously. However, I think you need to be very thoughtful about it. This is the waiting room from uh, Uganda, the most recent clinic I was at uh, in January. We saw 2,450 people in eight days. Um, and it was pretty incredible. And the patients actually had the better clinic set up because they didn't have any walls and they could get a breeze. And everybody wanted to be a dentist in this particular village because the dental clinic was under the mango tree and that was the coolest place there was. <laughs> we were all like, oh, I wish I could pull teeth. <laughs> all right, so the benefits. Let's talk, we're going to talk about the benefits to the patients, to the volunteers, to the population. So the patients obviously get some direct care. That would be the first thing everybody thinks of. That's why they're going. The child at the top, uh, anybody, any guesses on how old that child is? She looked to be about eight or nine months old. She's actually three. And her mother described that she had been doing well until about two years ago when she started to vomit every time, every time she took any food or fluid in. So they had been seen and told she needs surgery, but they couldn't get her to Kampala where the surgery would be free. So she's probably got pyloric stenosis. Uh, she needs a fairly simple procedure 
that's three hours away. We were not able to do the surgery, obviously, but we were able to leave money for transportation with our hosts who will make arrangements to get her and her mother to Kampala for the surgery. So direct care and the follow-up for uh, referrals for follow-up care. The lady on the bottom is somebody we saw last summer who had a prolapsed uterus that was to the point where she was a social outcast. She really just had to stay at home because it drained, it smelled, it was awful. And again, we had to have arranged for a few diagnostic tests and things. The surgery was free. She came back to visit us in January because she has a life back again. So those are the sort of feel-good stories that people hear and they say, I want to do that. And those are indeed profound. We diagnosed um, a new hydrocephalus in a six-month-old this year uh, who will now get a shunt. You know, you can make a big difference. But when you think about it, that's three people. And I just told you we saw how many? 2450. And I don't have any idea how many people we turned away because every day we turned away hundreds of people because we didn't have the capacity to see them all. Um, so those are the ob that's obvious. Self-care knowledge, however, is probably just as important, if not more important. In Uganda and many third world countries, they cook on wood or charcoal almost exclusively. They have dry, hacky, irritated coughs and irritated eyes. You and I would look at that and say, duh. But they don't know any other way, and they don't realize where that comes from. They don't know when a cough is dangerous, and they don't necessarily know how to treat the cough symptomatically to feel better. So we talked to them about um, avoiding the smoke, avoiding the charcoal, at least cooking outside, wearing a mask. We teach them how to make cough syrup out of locally available ingredients, honey, lemon juice, oil. We te teach them how to make eye wash and you know, to, to stay out of the, the smoke when possible. So that is hugely important. And we did um, a large educational program in January with our interpreters who then in turn taught the patients as they were waiting. Appreciation for other cultures, well, it's not just us who gets our horizons broadened. Of course, the people we are taking care of get their horizons broadened as well. And validation of self-worth is not to be underplayed. These people come in feeling um, inferior to you because they live in a mud hut, they have no water, they have no electricity, they have one outfit. And here you are, you traveled all the way from America, you have all this money, you, you know, you're paying for all this, so you're a wonderful person, and they're very thankful. But we have no idea what it would be like to live in those circumstances. And I had a young woman who was sitting just outside of the pharmacy, which is a table, um, nursing twins. Now that's no small feat. I mean, that requires some agility, and they weren't that big. They were probably three or four months old. And I, so I asked if I could take her picture, and she said yes, they, they like to have their picture taken. And she, I said to the translator, tell her she is doing a fantastic job. That is really a difficult thing to do. And she has two healthy babies here. And the smile on her face was every bit as rewarding as the smile on this lady's face. Because we validated she's doing a good job. She's got really hard circumstances. I am glad I'm not in her place. I'm sure I wouldn't be doing nearly as well. We also, they also get to see alternate practices. So for example, I told you we did the teaching um, and I did the eye irritation one. And I sent the um, teaching outline to a local practitioner, a nurse who's worked with us in several clinics and said, James, would you just take a look at this? Make sure that this, is, this all makes sense, that we're not telling them to do things that they're not gonna be able to do. And is there anything we need to add? And he emailed the eye one back and said, you need to tell them not to wash their eyes out with urine. Oh. I was like, really? 
I wouldn't have thought of that. And do you know the patients argued with me um, when we presented it? They're like, no, no, that's what we're told to do. I'm like, no, no, you should not wash your eyes out with urine. And, and I'm actually sort of befuddled because even though I was forewarned about this, it just doesn't compute. But the lead translator next to me said, think about it, people. Your body is getting rid of it. Why would you use it to wash your eyes out? <laughs> so they found an alternate practice. We taught them to boil water with some salt and baking soda. The populations also benefit. Um, we, you know, in both... Uh, the group of people knowing more about how to care for themselves, but also um, more knowledge, more self-care. You never know which person uh, you may work with who you may spur to go on to nursing school. We've had several translators and other people involved with the clinics over the years. Uh, Jeff tells me that have gone on to nursing or medical school. So now they stay and care for their, their, popu their people. Uh, there's also an economic benefit I'll tell you, the pharmacies in Palisa, the little town that was closest to where we did our rural clinic this year, they were, I'm sure they were having a party because we spent a lot of money there. We spent a couple thousand dollars to buy drugs. That's a huge economic benefit. We stayed in a hotel. That's an economic benefit. There are people that are paid to drive us around, et cetera. So we are infusing cash into the economy for people who are doing the work to get it. We're not just handing it out. They're earning it. And then the volunteer. Of course, you get a chance to develop new skills. You see things you're never going to see in the United States, perhaps. I can't tell you how many cases of malaria I've seen in Uganda. I can tell you how many I've seen in the United States, too. But in Uganda, it's an everyday thing. Worms, um, sexually transmitted diseases, tuberculosis, all kinds of things that we just don't see with any regularity, at least in the Upper Valley or most of the places I've been. Uh, cultural sensitivity, of course, we would hope you had some to begin with, but we'll, we'll, we know that that will generally improve. Now, the one on the bottom left is, is actually one of the most controversial because uh, Steve Bezrushka and others say that this really is the reason most people do this because it makes them feel good about themselves. You know, I went to Uganda and I took care of all these people, and that's not to be downplayed. It is an important thing, but I think it's important that you recognize that and recognize that that really shouldn't be your primary reason for going. Because if that's your primary reason for going, it's all about you. Um, you hopefully will come home understanding and appreciating what we have here a lot more. I tell you, the people in the waiting room who are upset in the emergency department after they've waited for 10 minutes for their stub toe, when you see somebody who waited all day in that tent for eight hours to get a bag of Tylenol for lower back pain, and then hits the dirt on their knees to thank you for it. That, that's, a, that's a nice feeling. It's, it's good to see that there are people who can still appreciate things. We learn about new diseases and conditions, as I said, and maybe promote some understanding of US patients and that we're a pretty entitled bunch. So these are wonderful things. What could be the possible downside of doing this? And I'm hoping we'll have some time at the end for some of you to discuss. Those of you who've been, I'm sure, are going to have other thoughts about this. Um, but there are risks. There are very real risks. Lack of follow-up. We're there for two weeks. We're gone. 
In Uganda, we have a stable, well-organized host. It happens to be a church. It doesn't. Um, it, this is a not not a faith-based organization that I travel with. But the host in Uganda is a church. They are very well organized. Um, they do have someone who we use as a social worker who can help organize follow-up. You saw his picture with that older woman. Um, but in general, you know, we can't treat long-term conditions. If you have hypertension and diabetes. We're going to do diet and exercise teaching. We're not going to give you antihypertensive meds and, um, and insulin. There's no insulin. There's no refrigeration. Um, so our, we're limited in what we can do. The one that keeps me awake at night is errors because we're doing, you know, when you're seeing that many patients in those situations, you really are lying, relying only on your five senses, and we can do a limited number of point of care. We have a lab person who comes with us, so we can do a limited number of lab tests. But most things you are diagnosing and treating just based on looking, listening, feeling. And so the possibility of error is great, and we're not going to be there in two weeks when they have a difficulty and need to be seen again. So that's... That, that's the one that really, and, and occasionally, you know, we get volunteers who are like, yeah, 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 they just, their goal is to see as many patients as they can a day, and they're handing out baggies of medications, and it, it sort of makes me crazy. I had a young woman a few years ago who, I don't know where this med came from. People donate stuff to us, you know, and all kinds of weird things turn up in the bins. She was going to start, she, well, she did start this patient on uh, metformin. I'm like, what are you thinking? First of all, you got two weeks' worth. Second of all, there's no follow-up. And third, pediatric ingestion. One of those tablets could kill her toddler. What are you thinking? Throw those pills away. So um, also, we, you know, we run into things we don't know, like um, uh, you know, malaria. We don't treat it here. So you try to read up in advance, but you go a lot on what the local practitioners are telling you sometimes about this is what we do for this. Well, maybe that's not the best thing. So something to think about. Interference with traditional practices and traditional practitioners. So if you um, convince them or they, for some reason, believe that what you're offering is superior to what they have locally, that may or may not be true. But irregardless, what they have locally is what they are left with when you go home. And if you destroy that person's credibility, inadvertently even, I'm not saying that you would intentionally do it, um, that could cause a healthcare deficit in the community. I mean, they had something, now they have nothing. We had a, a four-year-old who was brought by the mom, uh, had received a quinine injection for malaria. I'm not sure why the, the person chose to inject it because they can take it orally, but, um, and then had a profound limp ever after. So this is six weeks after the injection. Your nurses, you know what happened. The child got sciatic nerve damage from the injection. And um, I, so I was speaking with our host, and I said to him, um, this is a tragedy. This child will never have a normal leg. And he said, you know, I have a friend that happened to. You know, I can see the light bulb coming out of his eyes. I said, you know, it's too late to help this child, but if you could get that practitioner to come over, we would be happy to review new injection techniques with him and show him a safe place to inject on a child. So maybe we prevented future sciatic nerve damage. I'm not sure. But it was important that we don't, um, you know, that we don't discredit this guy because he's, he's what they've got. It can also create dependence. And especially um, 
when you're going to the same place year after year, which we'll talk about as a, an advantage, there are definite advantages to going to the same place year after year. But if they are waiting for you to come and fix it, then they're not going to necessarily build the infrastructure to fix it themselves. You know, I'll just wait, and you know, in six in six months, the Americans will be back, and they'll give me more medicine. And one of the team members last summer, I was quite surprised. Um, I had a patient come in January, hand me a note that says to Jean. Give this lady six more months of lisinopril, signed Norma, one of my team members from last summer. <laughs> okay, well, last summer we had this glut of lisinopril that somebody gave us. But, you know, she needs to um, find a local source, and she needs to find somebody to take her blood pressure and make sure it's working and, and all of those sorts of things. So we don't, we don't want to just give, we don't want to make it a one-way giving. They need to invest themselves um, and create um, follow-up plans so that they can have ongoing benefit. There are also risks to populations. I'm sure most of you are aware of the, the cholera that was introduced into Haiti by the Nepalese peacekeepers. Now, obviously, this is not intentional. Um, and it's probably not all that common, but it's devastating. So now we have a disaster on top of a disaster. And it was, it was brought by well-meaning people. So uh, we know well the uh, plight of the Native Americans who succumbed to smallpox and measles and all those things that they didn't have immunity to like the European settlers did. The other thing is that it can lead to the investment of money, local money, into other sectors. So if you're going to take care of the health care, then we'll go do this with the money. And that, you know, and not saying that the other sectors like education or water supply, those things aren't valuable. But they also need to create their own healthcare infrastructure, based, especially based on a two week every, you know, two weeks twice a year. That's not a long term solution. We also risk introducing technology without the infrastructure to support it. So this is a beautiful Western style trauma resuscitation room at Malago, which is the National Referral Hospital in Kampala. Um, and it, if you can read the sign, the yellow sign, it says that it was donated to the people of Uganda by the people of Israel. So this is a wonderful, beautiful thing. Now, let me just tell you, if you've seen The Last King of Scotland, the movie, and you saw the pictures of Malago Hospital in there that were allegedly from the 70s, they didn't have to change anything about that set to take that movie, I'm telling you. It looks exactly the same today. Um, they have about 6,000 inpatients most of the time. They have 2,000 beds. So 4,000 of those patients are on the floor, literally on the floor, and their family members are caring for them. So that's the setting, and then you put this in. It's locked. It's never used because they don't know how to work the technology. They are afraid if they open it up, people will steal the technology, and they probably will. There's a lot of graft and corruption in many of these countries. So the Israeli people feel good about doing this, but it's not really been a benefit to the people of Uganda because they don't use the room. And we risk introducing things without enough community buy-in. So once again, we're promoting that dependency. And this is one of Jeff, uh, Jeff Solheim is the founder of PHH, as I said. This is one of his slides from Central America, uh, Bolivia. Uh, they learned how to make these biosand filters that will filter out the water. You know, if you could do one single thing for the most of the people in the third world that would make their lives better and easier and make them healthier, it would be clean water. A, just having enough water, but B, having clean water. 
So they, they took the supplies to build these biosand filters to Bolivia, and they built them for the people. And they came back the next year, and they weren't using them because they didn't have any buy-in. It wasn't the pe the local people weren't that involved with it. We they built them and gave them to them. They need to explain to them, you know, we have this. We can do. We can build these things. This is how you do it. And if we did this, then you wouldn't need to boil your water. Would that be something you would be interested in? We could help you. We could teach you to make them. We could help you. Um, so that's that's the sort of thing that you need on the ground. They also had there. It was not PHH. It was another organization that invested a lot of resources in Sudan and were there for two or three years with farming equipment and combines and that kind of stuff. And they went home for a six-month you know sabbatical at home and came back and the stuff was all sitting right where they left it because the local people were back with their hose, you know, with a handle this long. They didn't buy into it. There are also risks to volunteers. That's Jeff on the top. I just tell you, um, I told him if he got bit by that spider, his own darn fault, and I wouldn't feel sorry for him. Uh, that's someplace in Central South America. But you know, there are risks of injury, illness. Um, this is the most recent, the Ebola outbreak in Uganda. That is not where we were holding clinics, but we did drive through that area, and there was Ebola in Uganda when we were there two years ago as well. So there are certainly risks. We take um, the precautions that we can to mitigate that risk. Uh, you know, we take malaria medicine, typhoid, get all of our vac vaccinations and stuff. But there's some of that, you know, it just goes hand in hand with it. I injured my foot the very first day at clinic. I'm still limping on occasion. That's just, you know, that's just part of it. Um, crime. We do um, Project Helping Hands. The host is responsible for the security of the team. And so that varies from country to country. I will tell you that I'm actually glad I didn't know this the first time I went. Um, there were armed soldiers at the, at the front and the back of the clinic, uh, which, well, I guess I thought about it a little bit. I didn't think about it too much. Uh, they were pretty, you know, innocuous, low-key. Uh, and then I realized, actually, this year, for the first time, I realized that they they actually wand every patient with a metal detector before we see them in clinic. I had no idea they were doing that. And it's just as well, probably. And I so I mentioned to Robert, wow, I didn't realize you were doing that, you know, just as a... And he said, um, well, you know, unfortunately, Americans are still a target in Uganda, and there's still people who would wish you harm. So we try to be as careful as we can. The fourth one on the bottom, people don't anticipate, and this is the one that can be the most crippling, I think, probably. Um, one of my friends who went this time had a very difficult time being away from her own family for that long. Um, and it was compounded by seeing hundreds of kids in clinic every day um, who had, you know, some of them had horrible diseases. A lot of them didn't, but still. Um, people also have difficulty when they come home, uh, readapting and reintegrating into the American or the, the Western healthcare system. So it's, uh, it can be almost like a PTSD sort of experience. And we, as team leaders, uh, spend time talking with our team members as we're winding up the mission, you know, in the evening, talking about, so when you get home, what's the first thing you're going to eat that you haven't been able to eat here, you know, and, and sort of trying to ease them back into it. And then I have sent follow-up emails, you know, hope everything's doing okay. You know, if you're having issues, reach out, talk to somebody, see someone. You know, you should, you should be sort of back to normal by now, your new normal, because we do know that it changes people.
So let's talk about ethical concerns and what we might do to mitigate some of those. The first is, you know, of course, do no harm. And as I mentioned earlier under risks, this is the one that really keeps me awake the most at night. I don't lie awake worrying about terrorists attacking because I wouldn't be able to go if I was that worried about that. I lie awake and wonder, did we do the right thing for that patient? Do we do the right thing for this patient? And then the sustainability of it. Is what you're doing going to have a long-term meaningful effect? Are you a flash in the pan? And it, you know, you, you may have changed, but there won't be really any difference for the population you've served. So the first thing in sustainability, as I mentioned before, the education that we provided. And this year, you know, going with two years of experience, I had very definite ideas about how we might improve things. And the woman, the top left, the woman in the middle, is Cindy Trinashevsky from Elsevier. If any of you are familiar with Mosby's Nursing Skills, which you have access to here, okay. So Cindy's like one of the lead people in that. And Cindy was my book editor years and years ago. And she went this year, she's on the PHH board. She wanted to go and actually do a clinical mission, though she says she hasn't touched patients for 20 years. I said, we can fix that. Uh, she became a triage nurse really quickly. But she was our education director. And what we did was I identified a list of about 15 things that are really common that we see, cough, itchy eyes, vomiting, diarrhea, hand washing. Um, and then the team members volunteered for topics, created about a one to two page outline of, of teaching tips. And we sent them over, got the feedback, got them back, and then we taught the translators. So we came the day before, we did a class for the translators. Purpose for that is is threefold. One, they will be able to give better instructions to our patients. So when we have somebody with a cough or itchy eyes, we can say to them, you know, teach them about cough. Um, they were then teaching the groups of waiting patients. And we hope that they will be able to take that knowledge into their community because maybe the guy next door has a cough or itchy eyes and they can provide some basic healthcare teaching. Uh, this is actually Cindy. <laughs> And uh, they're teaching how to put a condom on a tube of lubricant because we forgot to save a banana at breakfast. So um, one of the nurses was going to take a, an anatomic model for this, and I advised her not to. Just on the off chance that your luggage would be searched, things are pretty weird in Uganda, and that's probably not something you'd want to get caught with in your luggage. So. So um, you can see Cindy down at the bottom here. She's teaching how to do back exercises. And then to the far right, I have to give kudos to the Cornish quilters. Um, they made feminine hygiene kits. Uh, this is this information is available online. It's called Days for Girls. This is reusable sanitary products. Most girls' uh, education is compulsory until year six, which would be about 12 or 13. But so they no longer have to go to school about the time they would start their menses. They don't have access to products like we do. And that may mean that they miss several days of school a month. And that may mean that they just drop out. And as Robert, our host, said, and so starts the cycle of poverty. So one of the PHH women from Portland, Oregon, actually started this a few years ago. She found the information online. These are reusable flannel liners with a, um, they also don't have underpants, so that we, have, we take them underpants. 
and we made them the little kits as you see in the upper right. The quilters really did most of this work. Um, and then Cindy taught a feminine hygiene slash sex education class for young girls. We were able to get a group of girls together. You see them in the bottom right. And those bags, those colorful bags they have, um, the quilters, you know, they did a fabulous job. You, nobody wants to carry around a clear plastic bag full of that kind of stuff. So we made, they made these beautiful little bags that had long enough straps they could use them as backpacks. And um, I'm, now I'm, I'm waiting to hear from Rose, uh, who's uh, the pastor's wife, about the outcome. Because they tried these in Kampala a few years ago, and the girls there ended up not using them because it's too hard to get water. Um, they, they, it's just much more difficult to get water. In the village, where you'd think things would be worse, they have a borehole, so they have more water. So I want to wait and see how this actually works out before we do it, you know, to do it again. But that could make a huge sustainable change for the whole population if girls kept going to school. We visited a nurse, a brand new nursing school in Bwindi, which is in the southern part of the country, um, down near the gorillas. And there were, they started last November, and there are 13 students in the class and 10 are women. And when we said, I said to the director, I'm not saying this is bad, but this is unusual in the United States. We don't. We usually have about the opposite percentage of men and women. And she said most of the girls have not completed the educational prerequisites because they didn't stay in school long enough. So they're hoping that that can change. So that's a real sustainable, potentially sustainable difference. Um, this is a clinic in the Philippines, and or I. I can't remember. Anywhere. This is one of Jeff's pictures. But the point of this is that people do, um, of course, learn how to take care of themselves and then perhaps become interested in going on to uh, pursue more formal education. This is, um, this is just some individual patients. I talked about this earlier. But this young woman had spinal TB. And she actually brought her CAT scan with her. The patient owns the diagnostic test, so it's not uncommon for them to come in carrying films and stuff. She actually brought her CAT scan with her last summer, and we were all afraid that if she coughed, she would be a paraplegic. Um, but the treatment for spinal, for spinal TB is chemotherapy. And chemotherapy is actually one of the few drugs that's available free in Uganda because there is a lot of research done in Uganda. And we won't go any further, but let's just say that she got free care, and she came back to visit us. And she looks, I mean, we didn't think she'd live more than a few more months. The little boy on the right is the one who we diagnosed with hydrocephalus. He's six months old. Uh, before we ponied up the money for his CAT scan, we called the hospital. We have a contact at the hospital at Malago to make sure that they did indeed put shunts in. And they said yes. So we're hopeful he'll get his shunt soon. And then this is sort of the ultimate goal. I tell people my goal is to work myself out of a job, and then I can start going somewhere else. This is the ground behind the church. We hold the clinic in a church here, although it's, as I said, not faith-based. And we, the rule is that we see all take comers, and the church cannot limit who we see, so we see everybody. Um, but this is the land behind the church that they've purchased, and that's the clinic they're planning to build. So there is their long-term sustainability goal. They will have a clinic on site, a permanent clinic, and we won't need to go back there. Um, and Robert is one of those uh, charismatic, energetic guys. He's a young guy. He's got a huge team of 
people who help him, and if he says he's going to do it, I believe it. So Jeff tells me that there are now seven, this will be the seventh clinic that has sprung up from the initial seeds of the PHH mission. So the PHH doesn't go back to those places anymore. Those are now locally run and managed entities. So that's a great sustainability story. So now what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about maybe going? I know some people say they're interested, they don't have time, they want to do it in the future. Well, let's talk about how to do it in the best possible way if you're going to do it. And the first thing I would say is that you should go with an established group. Um, the Jeff Solheim story of a suitcase to the Dominican Republican with a bunch of Tylenol in it turned out well 20 years later. But in general, that's not the sort of thing that's going to be a long-term impact. So you want to investigate the organization and consider your strengths. What sorts of things do the organization do? Are they, and, and for some of you, it may be very important to know, are they faith-based or are they not faith-based? Because that could sway you one way or another. Many of them are faith-based, so you need to be able to accept that and any associated um, evangelical sort of activity that would go along with it if you choose to go with one of those organizations. Um, your strengths. What are, they, what are they going to expect you to do? If you go to PH, go with PHH, and as we don't expect anybody to do anything they're not comfortable with, but we do have nurses who are seeing patients independently and treating the minor things, um, going to get input from a physician or nurse practitioner if they have questions or concerns. Some nurses are not interested in doing that. They work primarily only in triage because they don't feel that their knowledge and skill base is adequate for those activities. So think about what you would be asked to do. And then disaster response, as I said earlier, this the work really may not be what you expect. So you need to think about that. And here you have huge potential to become an additional burden. If you can't show up ready to take care of yourself and your own needs, then the population has to support you in terms of food, water, shelter, etc. So for disaster especially, I think you need to be with a group that is well established for being able and, and able to respond and take care of themselves. And it's not about you. We talked about that earlier on the slide that that's really the real reason a lot of people probably are going even if they don't admit it. But that's not really the ethical thing to do. So I tell people, yes, you're going to get some benefits and you're going to feel good and that's an excellent thing, but that shouldn't be your primary focus. The other way that this comes about is um, having unrealistic expectations when you're on the ground. Uh, special dietary needs or uh, Jeff tells the story about being in the middle of the jungle where they killed like their one last chicken to feed him a meal and somebody asked for ketchup now. Come on, ketchup. Um, I, and I will tell you that PHH in particular does grade their trips with regard to level of personal hardship. And there are trips where they hike through the jungle with everything on their back and sleep in tents. And I don't go on those because I don't like to camp. I'm sorry. I, that would be so stressful for me. I would not be able to do the other stuff. There are trips where you stay in a hotel. Now, hotel, we're not talking the Ritz-Carlton, obviously. But we do have power. We do have hot water most of the time. You know, we have food that's prepared for us, so we're not sleeping outside. You need to think about that as well. And when Jeff, when they first started and they were doing all that camping stuff and he was saying you need to go, I was like, you're out of your mind. I'm not doing that. 
But when he said, then he said, Gene, we're going to Africa and we stay in a hotel. It's like, okay. Um, but it's not, a, it's not about you. And, and I do let a lot of things go. You know, there are, I have a friend who is so attached to ketchup that she brings her own. Okay, good. But she wouldn't refuse to eat it if she didn't have ketchup. So you need to think about those. And special dietary needs um, can really pose a hardship because you basically need to eat what they put in front of you most of the time. So, And they don't understand vegetarianism. Uh, because to them, eating meat is uh, is a wonderful thing, and if you could afford to do it, why wouldn't you do it? So it can be insulting um, if you're not careful. Also, focusing on one country or region. As I said earlier, some people are going to be tourists, and um, they want it, there are people who've been to every place that Project Helping Hands goes. And I made a commitment early on to stick with one country because I learn more about the country and their needs and the people every time I go. And I think I can be more effective with that knowledge base. Project Helping Hands at least tries to have a consistent team leader. So we have two team leaders who basically do Uganda now. Um, the team members vary. At least a team member will have that knowledge of the local healthcare system um, and be able to make more of a difference. As I said, my job is to my goal is to work myself out of a job in Uganda, and then I'll look at going somewhere else. Um, integrating with the local healthcare system is important wherever you can do it, if there is one to integrate with, because somebody has to be there to follow up with your patients. And your local healthcare people can also give you better ideas about what's reasonable for people. Um, I had a, a nurse practitioner on the most recent trip. She's listening to everybody's heart sounds, and you know you don't want to say to her, "Don't do that," but you want to say to her, what are you going to do with that information? Because she's sending me all these little follow-up slips saying she wants them to have an echo. I'm like, what would we do with the results of an echo? And she said, well, he could have a, you know, he could have a VSD and he could need open heart surgery. And I said, and are you going to take him to India to have that? Because that's not something that's offered in Uganda. So it's it's really sounds cruel, but let's be realistic here. An echocardiogram costs 200 American bucks. Let's not do that. Let's save that $200 and buy more worm medicine or more malaria medicine. So focus on what you can do and make the most with what you have. Prepare yourself. Learn as much as you can about local medical things and look at the evidence. You know, just because the local practitioners have been treating malaria this way forever doesn't mean it's the best way. Uh, and one of the things I tell people in terms of preparing yourself is get your resources. That is actually me in the pharmacy looking up something on my iPad, which sounds crazy, but do you know how many books you can carry in an iPad? And if you have a dermatology book, you can have color pictures. So the, my iPad is like indispensable, and you want to make sure that if you have like Hippocrates or Medscape or any of those, that you download the database to your device and you update it right before you leave, because you're not going to be able to get on the internet while you're seeing patients and look stuff up. Um, but reading about things and reviewing the literature is very important. Also, learning about the local healthcare system. I happen to know somebody, um, or I met somebody in the Ministry of Health through the other team leader who's been there several times, and I had him come and talk to people about what the healthcare, how the healthcare system is set up in Uganda. Believe it or not, there is a healthcare system. You wouldn't necessarily know that in some parts of the country. Trying to find out about the cultural issues and the language. If the people who go to South America have it easy because Spanish. 
they can do Spanish. But in Uganda, there are 50 different dialects spoken. The official language is English, but there are 50 dialects. And you're not going to find that in Google Translate. So we had the uh, interpreters do a little class for us. And this, they, think, you know, they, they think it's hysterical to listen to us to pri- try and pronounce the words. So it's a good opportunity for them to be the teachers and, and for us to be the inferior ones for, you know, for a while. We had them teach us basic words like thank you, et cetera. And again, if you make the effort, uh, people would say thank you. And I learned how to say you're welcome. And they would be like, wow. She, you know, and one of them then says to the translator, "Does she speak Luganda?" He's like, "No, no, she only knows about ten words, but whatever." Um, and then the reference material, as I said. And don't assume that what we have is best. I love this. Did you know that kids in North America are forced to sit in classrooms all day, and if they move around, get excited, or make too much noise, they are given drugs to keep them quiet. (laughs) Their main source of exercise is playing video games, and most of their food is fake and full of dangerous chemicals. And the other little boy says, that's terrible. We should take up donations for them. So... You know, I think we tend to think that, yeah, we have it great, and we can help everybody else have that, and that's not necessarily accurate. Take only the best of U.S. health care. You know, our health care system is pretty screwed up. This is not a secret. Everybody knows that. Um, It's not a good model. Why would we want to recreate that someplace else? And this is actually one of Steve Bezrushka's biggest things. He says, we have so much trouble here at home. We need to be focusing more on what we're doing here. But um, so ways that that comes down to team member level, appropriate prescribing. Antibiotic resistance is very big in Uganda because anybody can go to the pharmacy and buy whatever they want. And they do on a pretty regular basis. People come in with jaw-dropping things. Like, I've been taking this. Whoa, where'd you get that? Um, So we need to be um, thoughtful and not prescribe inappropriately. And we face just as much challenge from those patients as you would in the United States. They want an antibiotic for their cough. I mean, I had a guy at Gifford two weeks ago who was so annoyed that the physician would not give him an antibiotic for his cough. He asked what time the next doctor came on and said he'd be back in two hours. You know, it's insane. So it's we face some of some, those similar things here. And then avoiding unnecessary complexity. You know, as I said, we have these pills and baggies that we divide up. And one of the things we take, we take lots of vitamins. Um, so sometimes, you know, we, if there's nothing else to give the patient, because they really don't need anything else, we'll give them vitamins. And I remember one patient, she had about she was an older woman and the nurse had about four baggies of meds for her. She was out in the pharmacy and she said, oh, and I better get her some vitamins because she's really old. And I said, stop. If she made it this long, she probably doesn't need vitamins. You're giving her four bags of pills. She can't read. What are the chances she's going to be able to keep all this straight? So let's do only what we need to do, make sure she understands, and forget the vitamins. She probably has a more healthy diet than we do. Um, And plan to educate, not just provide care. As I said earlier, symptom management, health promotion, and develop the local practitioners whenever you can. We do have local practitioners who come to work with us. And we um, don't just turn them loose. We work, they work with one of our physicians or nurse practitioners for a while so we can make sure that there's sort of appropriate care. 
one of the physicians who uh, started traveling with PHH and now has moved to Tanzania and opened an orphanage uh, comes up and helps us still. And he said, they're really taught cookbook medicine. They're taught about 20, 20 conditions. And so the patient gives them three symptoms. They match it to one of those 20 and that's what you've got. Everybody thinks they've got syphilis. Everybody thinks they've got syphilis. Syphilis and ulcers are probably the two most common things we hear in terms of an actual diagnosis. Um, and you know, for syphilis, a lot of the times it's the men shaving their pubic area and they have folliculitis. They don't have syphilis, and uh, most of them have GERD, not ulcers. They have GERD. So trying to help the local practitioners learn a critical thinking approach to assessment and evaluation and to prescribing can be a challenge, but it's very important. And then why would you do this when the need in our own country is so great? And I have to say, I, I actually firmly believe that if you can spend thousands of dollars, take two weeks of vacation, travel halfway around the world, be at risk for malaria and any other number of infectious diseases, why can't you do it at home for a few hours a month? So think about opportunities to provide volunteer care at home and improve care for your neighbors. You can also make charitable donations and you all know that you should be checking out those organizations to see what percentage of their money actually goes to the end result and what percentage is going to overhead. There are a couple of different websites that you can do that at. Um, Good Neighbor Clinic, of course, is our local clinic and I'm headed there to work in two hours. Um, but, you know, the United States has some pretty horrific statistics. It's like really embarrassing, if you ask me, that we are 34th in life expectancy and 46th in infant mortality. That's crazy. I mean, we have the most um, expensive healthcare system in the world for those kinds of outcomes. And we really need to think hard about what we could do as individuals to make a difference with that. And people say, oh, it's, it's a huge system, it's broken, one person can't fix it. It's gotta start somewhere. It's gotta start somewhere. And it has to start with people who really are doing this with the best interest of the population and the health and their health at heart. Because as Bob Hope said, if you don't have charity in your heart, you have the worst kind of heart trouble. Mm -hmm. So now I would love to, to have a bit of a discussion. We've got about five minutes. Um, experiences that you've had, thoughts you have on how to do this in a more ethical, sustainable way, um, things that you've maybe done or thought about? Lunch, everybody's food just hit their stomach and... Andrew, I know you have extensive experience. Yeah. Um, well, when I went to, when I went to nursing school, um, I had a community and we went down to the Dominican Republic for two weeks. And, um, and that's when um, I had my first taste of uh, international work. So I read a couple of books. Um, one of them was How to Live Your Life Volunteering Overseas. And um, the other one was Alternative to, Alternatives to the Peace Corps. And I, those were great books. Okay. So I'm, for the sake of the recording, How to Live Your Life Volunteering Overseas yeah. and yeah. Alternatives to the Peace Corps were two helpful books. Okay. Which was ultimately the only organization that 
really want to explore books. Okay. There's another great book. Um, it's called Toxic Charity. Uh, and it's, it's, it's sort of addressed at churches, how they hurt instead of help. But there's a good message in there that's non-faith-based as well. In terms yeah, of I think you really hit on the head, though, um, when you were talking about knowing, that, knowing who you're working with. Um, down in Haiti, um, this was just the year after the earthquake. The, the UN had um, 5,000 organizations registered with them, and they think there was another 5,000 that... Oh. With them, just people going down. So there's a lot of work going on down there, um, and people are using up resources and they're driving up, you know, costs for food and mm-hmm. for, um, for housing. And um, and you see a lot of people who are working against each other too. So right. there's a lot of division. Mm-hmm. And, and no matter which organization you're in, I mean, you're always going to be questioning yourself. And that's a healthy thing. Yeah, it's great to have that in your own team to be questioning. Sandy, I know you said you go to Ethiopia, or you've been to Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And, and I probably did the worst things possible the first trip, because we just thought, oh, let's go raid the third world warehouse, and we'll just bring stuff that I'm sure they're going to need. <laughs> and we brought stuff over. And I said, why did it be? Nobody asked us for this stuff. We just thought it would be good for them. So you know, as I've gone more times, I've gotten much smarter. And um, I work with one specific group that does family-based orphan care, and we go over more just to, uh, and what we do is we bring teenagers at this point, and it's sort of learning about cultural humility, and being able to just be there, be present, learn from them, have them learn from us, and just have a relationship before you start going beyond that, because I also find even when I get to know people, I mean, I'm not going to tell you the things I need the first time I see you. you right. Come back a couple of times, and then it's okay. Now you're family, and it, and you can tell by the way they kiss you. Mm-hmm. Right. Kiss, you get three kisses. If you're good to anybody, you get the fourth kiss right on the cheek, on the the neck. <laughs> but recently, I went to Haiti for a nursing education conference. Mm-hmm. Group of nurse educators in Haiti, and one of the, the educators talked about the experience after the earthquake and talked about being victims twice because the earthquake came, then all these people came from other countries and sort of pushed the local health care providers aside. Right. And that's it's key to get them involved. Yeah. Exactly. I love that cultural humility, especially for teenagers. That's, you know, Cindy. About 10 years ago, I was invited on a trip to Mexico um, with the Hope Alliance, which is a group organized out of Salt Lake City. So it is a Mormon-based. Okay, so faith-based. It's faith-based, but I never heard, mm. you know, it wasn't a dog talk or anything. But the people that organized it, they have um, clinics throughout South America and Central America. This was a week-long um, trip that we took, and uh, we brought teenagers with us, too. So it was actually in Puerto Vallarta, and people are like, oh, you went to Puerto Vallarta? Mm-hmm. Well, yes, we did, but there's another part of Puerto uh-huh. Vallarta yes. that people don't see. Right. And um, it, it was really, you know, one thing that I found, um, having been a nurse for a long time, that, that I got out of it was um, it was kind of freeing for me, having been worked, having worked in a place with so many rules. Mm-hmm. 
as physicians and nurses and um, when we were having to kind of really end up fending for ourselves and find supplies for ourselves because the supplies ran out right away and that type of thing. Um, it was kind of freeing to be able to kind of think out of the box and, and um, <coughs> know that you can, you know, depend on yourself to um, problem solve yep. before you didn't have things. So that was kind of, kind of a fun part. There's a great book called Improvised Medicine by Ken Iserson that talks about giving care in austere environments that has a lot of things that you probably, some of them probably you figured out on your own, but I, I found it just interesting because it just opens up your mind to other possibilities. We make, uh, we can't do nebs, so we make spacers out of cups, plastic cups, and do MDI treatments instead. I mean, you, you can use this for a roll of paper towels. Uh. Yes. You know, they became gold for us, and we would just bring them from the city out to where we were because you could, you could find candies that are disposable, they're clean, you know, mm. they're easy to deal with. Yes. And uh, so it was, I don't know, it was, it was uh, just kind of uh, quite I think, you know, Sandy said you did everything wrong the first time. I, if you don't, somebody has to go and f make the mistakes to inform those who come after so you know I think it's it's a it's a good thing because now you have a much better idea of what what you can do to actually help I had uh, we're trying to uh, we have dentists local dentists who work with us and these guys see like 80 patients a person a day sometimes yeah they're mainly just pulling teeth but we're trying they have to rent their dental instruments and they have we have these big pressure cookers that they sterilize them in but they have to rent the instruments. And so the um, host asked if we could maybe get donations of instruments. And so I said, well, sure, but I don't know a dental instrument from, you know, so you got to send me a list. And they're like, there are right upper extractors and right lower extractors and left upper, you know. So I got this whole list and a friend um, in the southern part of the state actually who was on the team sent, has some dentist contacts and sent out, you know, that we were looking for donations. <laughs> Emailed me back and said, I'm just checking, but somebody has a new x-ray developer that's never been used that they're willing to donate. Is that something we could use? <laughs> I said, no power to the mango tree. You're not gonna be no. I mean, we need pliers to pull teeth out is basically what we need. So somebody else wanted to bring um, pediatric colostomy supplies. So you talk about going to the third world warehouse and just grabbing whatever's there. I said, no. If, if they have a colostomy, I don't think there's probably a child in Uganda with a colostomy and if they do they're a wealthy child and they have resources to get that themselves so but you don't know if you haven't been there you can't imagine it yeah um, sorry I'm Sarah um, I went to Southern Africa and Botswana um, as a nurse and now I'm at the med school oh, okay. um, and I think you touched on this a few different times but to me that he was building relationships mm -hmm. over time yes um, because no matter how much thinking we did ahead of time about the ethics and what was going to be most useful and accountability, we didn't know what we didn't know exactly. until we built a relationship and built the trust where the local hosts felt comfortable telling us, hey, you're yes. really screwing this up for us. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. So I think that's the key. And you touched on it with going back and, and all of this learning. But I think just to emphasize that you're never going to know from PowerPoints or reading, um, you need to, to have that person who's able and willing to tell you when you're screwing up. Right. Yeah. Note, um, as someone who's done missions with Dr. Lepore's long term, I've gotten to know my national staff really well. And, you know, we come in and they say, okay, you're going to be the manager of this team of national staff. 
these guys every six months, every nine months, every two weeks, they'll get a new, you know, a new expert coming in and saying, no, you're doing this wrong, this is how I want you to do it. And so I want to speak from them is to have some sensitivity. I always came in and maybe I had, you know, I had the benefits that I'm going to be here long term. The first couple of weeks, you show me what you do. Mm-hmm. Teach me about malaria, things that I've never seen. And over time, then you can say, well, I think maybe if we do it better this way. But, you know, the ones who walk in and just try to make changes from day one, that's just setting people up for failure and frustration. And those, and those are the changes as soon as you leave, they're going to stop doing it that way. It's like having a consultant into a department, and they tell you to do it this way, but you don't have any buy-in from the staff. So you make the changes while the consultant's there, and then they're gone, and you go back to doing what you were always doing. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your attention. And if you, um, if you want more information or the um, handout, there's my email and also the web page. And it has, it has web pages on it as well.